0: Hey friends, the National Worship Leader Conference is happening in Nashville on May 7th through 9th. You know, there are a lot of conferences out there, but this one is shaping up to be something pretty unique and special. They're doing things like coffee talks each morning where folks can get to know the industry and business professionals they've watched from afar. Some amazing speakers and musicians. It's going to be a fully interactive experience where worship, information, and relationships all connect. I'm going to be there, and you should too, so check them out at worshipleader.com. The Pivot is also brought to you by New College Franklin. New College Franklin is a four-year Christian liberal arts college in Franklin, Tennessee, dedicated to excellent academics in a rich community. They offer a unique opportunity to become part of that learning community that's focused on educating the whole person. For more, go to newcollegefranklin.org. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is Kevin Twitt. Kevin runs the RUF, which is the Reformed University Fellowship uh, Ministry at Belmont University. It's it's the college ministry for the PCA, the Presbyterian Churches of America. I sure hope that's what that actually stands for. Um, I think it does. But more than likely, you've heard of Kevin, uh, if you've heard of the Indelible Grace music, um, that's a movement that he started. It's a taking old hymns, which he loves and knows more about than like anyone else in the world, and putting them to new music. He's an incredibly skilled musician and theologian. And he's married those two in rediscovering all these amazing old hymns that have been written sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years ago that are now being sung in churches around the world through him putting them to new music and him getting the college students that he works with to come alongside as they write new music for those hymns. And that's included artists like Sander McCracken and Jars of Clay, Cademan's Call, uh, Matthew Smith, Jeremy Casella, a bunch of people in my community have been a part of this movement, as well as hundreds of other college students. Uh, I met Kevin twenty years ago when I got involved in RUF. When I had just left college, but all my friends were still in college. He's an amazing teacher, an amazing teacher. You'll hear that in this in this podcast. He's clearly one of the smartest people I've ever met and has a real gift for sharing that love of knowledge with uh, students uh, which is a great thing for college kids who are a lot of whom are kind of having to really figure out what they actually believe for themselves for the first time and Kevin is a great guide for that and he, he had a huge impact on my life and the lives of so many in my community people who I'm still really close with now a lot of other guests on this podcast even and I wanted to talk to him because Kevin has had his own pivot he has uh, he started as a musician and then moved into recording and before going into the ministry and I'm definitely interested in that but also he spends Like every day of his life with people who are at the beginning of their careers, the beginning of their adult lives, they're constantly wrestling with what am I going to do with my life, calling, and he's helping people navigate that day in and day out. And so I really wanted to talk to him about that experience and what he has learned from walking with people through that first step in their journey for the last 20 years. And uh, it did not disappoint. I should add, too, that Kevin as the pastor who married my wife and I 15 years ago, uh, which is just a fun little thing. And now our daughters are on the same basketball team. So we're basketball dads together. And I just love that so much. so fun. Uh, But I'm really, really excited for you to get to hear this conversation with my dear old friend, Kevin Twitt. You've heard me talk about Blind Tiger Record Club, and that's because they're awesome. They send curated vinyl every month straight to your door in the genre that you choose. They've got new, sealed, full-length 12-inch records from Artists of Today. Uh, they've got double albums, 180 gram, color variant, hard-to-find imports, just super cool stuff. I'm a member of the record club, and I look forward every month to getting that box. Really cool music, and as well as like hats and t-shirts. They've even got their own record players. They're so cool. It's a great way to beef up your vinyl collection with great new records that are coming out now, and you don't have to worry about it. They just show up in the genre that you choose. Super awesome. So check them out. Blind Tiger Record Club. Your vinyl, your choice. To start, I'd love to hear a quick... Kind of rundown of your history because yeah. you've had you've had a couple careers. Yes, but I don't actually want to focus on that. But I would love to hear oh, about. Oh, okay, that. yeah, okay. You have so, other questions. That I you do want have to talk other about? questions. Okay. All right, yes. good.
1: I grew up in Baltimore. Um, went to Berkeley College of Music. I'd went there the summer of my junior year, um, to explore music, maybe music production. I didn't think I was a good enough guitar player to play guitar, but I had heard about recording engineering. Berkeley was one of the few places you could get a four year degree. Um, back then in recording, and they're, hmm. you know, now they're everywhere. Uh, so I went there. That was a great experience. Um, and both playing guitar, you know, just learned to think outside the box. Um, uh, yeah, recording, engineering, all that kind of stuff. Met a lot of great people, great, great friends. My senior year, we started a Christian fellowship at Berkeley. Now, I'd been okay. going to different Christian groups, other places. It was hard to find Christian fellowship in the 80s in Boston. Uh, there's a lot more good churches there now, um, but I've met some people. Uh, actually, you might know Chris Dente. Yeah, you know she was like, you know, the one pretty girl who was a Christian at Berkeley. It was literally eight <laughs> percent girls when I was there, in ninety-two. So all the Christian oh, guys man. met each other because That's they all. like the Bonavir show yeah, yeah. I went to last night. Yeah, so yeah. They, we all were like introduced ourselves to Chris because she was very uh, out with her faith, mm-hmm. right? And so she'd be like, oh, you need to meet so-and-so and and you need to meet so-and-so. You guys are all Christians and we didn't know each other, but we began to get to know each other. Um, I met my friend, Glenn Hoberg, who eventually became the best man at my wedding there. Mm -hmm. And we started this Christian fellowship with a handful of people, had a local pastor um, teach that for us. And then he got transferred. This was right as I was getting to... Uh, graduate, and everybody was like, who's going to take over the Christian fellowship? Kevin, maybe you should. And that's when I started deciding I needed to figure out what I believed about a lot of things. Mm. Started going to used bookstores and used record stores. And I took a job supervising the recording studio. I worked six at night to four in the morning. And then during the day, I'd get up about lunchtime. that's just
0: gross.
1: No, no, it was actually great. Um, It was the place where everybody came and hang out, you know, at Berkeley. And we talked about the gospel and about Mm -hmm. life. And it was really a great, great, great time. One of my fondest times in ministry ever. And so uh, I would just go during the day and like look for books. I had no real guidance and um, I would teach some crazy heretical stuff. And then the next week I'd read another book (laughs) and I'd be like, hey, guys, I was wrong. Like I had no guidance. If any of my students did that, I'd be like, no, but God was faithful. And um, then I finished that and I came down here to Nashville um, and started looking for jobs in a recording studio. Uh, so, which meant I was a waiter for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then uh, eventually met a guy playing guitar on a demo, and then the engineer guy was asking me what so I was doing So you were the guitar town. player? I was a guitar devil. player, and the, this engineer guy was just you know making small talk. I said, I really want to be an engineer, but I haven't been able to get my foot in the door anywhere. And he said, well, Digital Recorders is hiring this guy Norbert Putnam.
0: Mm-hmm. Norbert
1: was like a legendary Muscle Shoals guy. He's one of the guys that brought rock. You know, music in the '70s to Nashville. He started Quad oh, in the Bennett House, and yeah. um, all, all kinds of stuff. All the great Did it, all dreams, the Jimmy Buffett yeah. records, all the Dan Fogelberg. And now I'm actually realizing all of the cool people that I was around in those mm. in that era. I didn't really know the significance of kind of where God, you know, kind of Isn't put me there. Isn't that always the way it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I but I enjoyed that. But it, you know, that was great. I I worked in the studio for a couple of years. And that was enough for me to see that if I'm successful at that career, I'll hate my life.
0: Tell yeah. s- me about that. What does that <laughs> yeah. mean?
1: Yeah, there's, there's an interesting story because God used this story even though I was wrong about it. Here's what I mean. <laughs> so I remember working on a White Hart record, okay. you know, and Brown Bannister was the producer. Mm-hmm. And I remember like every night him having to call home to his kids and tell them mm-hmm. he wasn't going to be home that night. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't want that. And I remember seeing Ellie, you know, yeah. Holcomb, who's his daughter, years later, and I told her that story, and she said, well, what you didn't know was he would take like two months off after that project and be with us. Hmm. And I know him now, and, uh, you know, he's a great dad. Amazing, yeah. But that, was the, that, was, that experience was, even though I didn't know the full story, but it was enough for me to be like, I just don't know if that's what I want Sometimes you're on a, on a tra- track and you realize if I'm successful, I'll hate my life. And um, I wasn't quite sure what to do next. So I joined a rock band. Okay, and that's when I started playing yeah. with,
0: with Mullen. Yeah, yeah. Well, because Ellie was on this po- podcast earlier, mm. and she told the same story about not wanting to be a musician because her dad was gone all the time. Oh, there you go. So that's interesting. That I mean, that both of yep. you, yeah, yep. you would see that and take that away. Before we get to you joining a rock band, yeah. you did work on a New Kids on the Block record, right?
1: Oh, I did. You got a yeah, us the about first that. one. Um, okay, so when I was in Boston, because that was that came out of out mm-hmm. of Boston. I think the story was, what did he done? New Edition. That producer guy, Uh, and then they sued him. Uh, Um, I can remember what he looked like. Yeah, Maurice Starr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he, they had sued him, and he was like, "Well, fine, I can pick up any group of kids and do it all over again." (laughs) (laughs) So he had auditions, and he did it all over again. And I remember, yeah, this guy Paul Arnold uh, was a great guy. He worked at Berkeley, supervising the studios, and he was, you know, doing vocal overdubs and had me come assist him. You know, one night, I just remember us trying to punch the d on candy over and over and over again <laughs> and i remember going and seeing the record when it came out my name wasn't on it or anything of course but um i, I remember it just had like all the guys like their favorite color and their favorite food and i was like i know it was the first record i actually worked on but i just can't own this <laughs> <laughs> and i still don't own
0: it yeah that's wonderful yeah. um okay so yeah so you decided you didn't want to if you were successful at this career that you wanted, yeah. you would hate your life. So you joined a yeah. rock band. Yeah. Because no one hates their life in a rock band.
1: Yeah. Well, I at that point, I felt like, I, I you know, I don't want to wake up 30 years old and still playing in a bar. Yeah. I kind of had that sense. Um, but I went to Berkeley. That was kind of what everybody did. Yeah. You said <laughs>
0: earlier that you weren't a, you didn't think you were a good enough guitar player. Yeah. You're a great guitar oh, player.
1: Well, thank you. Well, you know this. Learn, how to, learn how to fake things. That's part <laughs> of what Berkeley does. Um, I, so I... Um, Right A couple of things happened at the same time. So working on a, a record that Tommy Sims was producing, mm-hmm. he was roommates with David Mullen at the time. Okay. Tommy, great musician, you know, had played with Whiteheart and then Bruce Springsteen and all kinds of stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Yeah. The best. But so I met David and um and he was good buddies with Chris McHugh, who was a drummer in Whiteheart way back then. And I started hanging out with those guys. Um, started going to Christ Community Church mm-hmm. um, because there was an engineer that told me he had visited Christ Community, all the pretty girls were there. And so I went and visited and I didn't, didn't, didn't uh, go anywhere else and mm-hmm. eventually found my wife there. Um, but anyway, so the, I met David and as I was kind of feeling like maybe the studio thing was getting old, there were a couple things that happened at the same time. One was Restless Heart booked the studio for like six months. I don't know if you remember that band. It was like very like... Like very precise, clean, slick country pop music. Okay. Um, and the fact that they booked the studio for six months and requested me to work the project meant I was we were gonna get like one verse a day vocals because this oh. would be like the most intense tuning. And, um, you know, like what you can do with Pro Tools, but we didn't have Pro Tools then. You had so to I just thought, and this and is re-punch. going to be horrible. I just can't do it anymore. <laughs> I was already on the way out, but that was like, okay, you know, if that's my choice.
0: Well, that would have been I'm a big rec- a big It would have been a big I record, mean, yeah. but
1: geez, I just couldn't do it. At that point, I, you got to the point where I was working 80 to 100 hours a week. It would get to the point at the end of the night, I'd just calculate and realized I couldn't get eight hours of sleep tonight, and I was just mad. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to get eight hours of sleep again. Dang it. You know, mm-hmm. th- that became the whole focus. That's not really where I needed to stay. Um, so that happened. I produced, or I, I really helped David Mullen with these demos. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, programmed the drum machine, play guitar, play bass, engineer. Yeah. And then he ends up getting a record deal with Warner Brothers. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I guess I could go play guitar with him, and he was excited and thrilled about that, and um, it kind of all came together at the same time, and also at the same time, Christ Community Church put an ad in their little bulletin to want to start a college Sunday school class, Hmm. and David had been a youth intern at Christ Presbyterian Church, which was kind of the mother church of Christ Community, and I'd had that experience in Boston helping lead that uh, ministry yeah. up there, and so I thought, well, I can help out, you know. So we volunteered and started that little Sunday school class, you know. Used to meet kind of almost in like a little closet behind the sanctuary, mm. behind these two doors, and um, that kind of went for a while. And then I was, played with Mullen, and eventually playing with Mullen, which you know has its own kind of stories. I don't know how much you want to hear about that, <laughs> but eventually. There was one period where we were gone a lot. Yeah. Like we went to Russia, we went to Africa, we went to Japan. We did all we went to some cool places. Yeah, I never made really any money. Cool. But it's cuz we were with William Morris and they had two other bigger Christian artists. Uh-huh. BB and CC Winans and Petra. And people would call up wanting a Christian group and they couldn't afford them, so they would get us. So we would get all these gigs that were really cool, but we never made any money. Yeah, yeah, but it was a cool experience. But I, I, I felt like even going into it that that was a temporary mm. thing. I was still single. I felt like I could go play in a rock band for a few years. Um, but near the end of that time, the Sunday school class just about died because I was gone for so long, mm. and I really felt kind of torn with that. You know, so that started kind of me thinking that maybe I need to. Move out of music vocationally.
0: So, you, so moving out of music vocationally. Uh, at what point did you go to seminary? Was that? Yeah. After this, after this. After okay. this. Yeah. So there was a
1: there was a two things that happened. One, Scott Rowley, who you mm-hmm. might remember, Scott. Yeah. Um, he became the youth pastor at Christ Community. Okay. And I remember we had a little service to install him, and he said because he'd been out on the road, Christian music. You know, he's one of the pioneer guys, um, and then been with my card forever. And he talked about how he felt God really was primarily building his kingdom through the local church, and I thought. Yeah. Like, that's why he was saying he was getting off the road and going to be the youth pastor. And I thought, yeah, I get that because I'm playing in bars, you know, to college students in this Christian band, but then I'm teaching college students every week in Sunday school. And that Sunday school class seems much more effective. Hmm. And so I totally resonated, but that that didn't fully get me out of music. Then there was a time I was at the art house, which Charlie Peacock ran back then. There was some kind of event where people were talking about their art and how they viewed it, and I heard people talking about their art, and I just was sitting there thinking, you know, I just kind of play guitar, <laughs> but I just not wired the same way. I just didn't think, like, that was not my, like, woe is me if I don't make art, but I did feel a sense of woe is me if I don't teach people the gospel and talk to them about those things, so it was very gradual, you know, um, I would say, yeah, it was very gradual when people asked me, because it's not the typical story of how to get to seminary. Yeah. Um, But then I decided to do that. And we actually had a guy come preach at Christ Community, an Anglican priest, I think, who was from South Africa, who came and he talked, the message, he said, you should always move from a position of strength. Um, What do he mean? Well, what I took from it, and what I think he meant was, don't run from something, don't just leave something, go to something. And so it was stay in what you're in until you know that you could stay there if God called you to. Be willing to stay before you leave. Make your sure. peace with that. That's what he was saying. And, and that's what I did. And it yeah. actually was really helpful to me because even in going to seminary, you know, you have – to in the Presbyterian Church, you have to go and meet with a group of pastors and elders and talk to them about why you feel called to seminary. And they asked me the question, are you just running for music? Are you – kind of sick of music. And what I had done is I'd said, okay, I'm done with the band, but I'm still gonna stay for a year um, and just be helping out with the Sunday school class and just working odd jobs. I just don't wanna be running. I wanna make sure that I'm really settled. And if God wants me to stay here, I would stay here. Hmm. That actually helped me to go better when the time came to go. Hmm. So how did you know it was time to go? I mean, some of it is, well, if you're going to go to seminary this year, you got to, you know, it starts in a certain time. There are arbitrary deadlines. You got to do, yeah, yeah, you got to do summer Greek. Now's the time. Um, Well, I also talked to, um, well, uh, the the church hired a guy, Mark Berry, to be the college guy. Okay. So that actually, at first I was a little hurt, like that they didn't ask me if I wanted to do that. But then I really saw it as the Lord's kindness because what was keeping me around is a feeling like no one's going to care for this class if i leave but mm-hmm. now there was somebody here to care for that class yeah and you had so, stayed
0: long enough to and i stayed uh, for kind of that transition. year yeah. yeah
1: the transition i stayed that year guy named rick Punkashar, who you remember mm-hmm. elder kind of a wild man a guy who literally saw hendrix burn his guitar at the monterey pop festival Ugh. yeah um he he came on board too, and he was kind of a wild man. So part of me, I was like, I don't know about these guys. This is still kind of my baby. I'm gonna be involved in this. And after a year, then it was time to go. And I had to talked to the pastors like Scotty Smith, and he said, Well, I always thought you would go to seminary. Just a matter hmm. of time. So that was good confirmation, yeah, uh, for me.
0: So how old were you when you went to seminary? Twenty eight. What's that what do you what do you think is the average age of somebody starting seminary?
1: Man, I think that's a good age. Yeah. I think it probably is younger in more conservative seminaries. Okay. I know that it's older in more mainline seminaries. Interesting. It tends to be more second career like places like Princeton and Union and some of those as uh, over the years I've been able to visit and speak at yeah. some of those places. So, it's a little different. I don't think it's a good thing to do right after college most for most people. Um, won't make a rule about that. But in general, I, yeah, 27, 28 is pretty good. You need to get beat up a little bit, have a your heart little broken bit. a little bit. Here's what I think. I think you need to find that you are you don't know what, what you're doing so <laughs> that you're motivated enough to stick it out. Like you have to try and do it and then realize like, okay, I'm in way over my head. Um, and I also know now what are the things they are teaching me to the really the most valuable mm. that I really need to pay attention to. Yeah, um, But that was hard for me because I always just imagined I'd be married by 27, 28. And I felt like when I went there, that that was one of the bigger things, even going to seminary. I felt like, I don't know how that's going to happen because now I'm probably doing this until I'm in my 30s.
0: Yeah. And I imagine seminary is kind of like Berkeley as far as... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I keep going to (laughs) schools. (laughs) Yeah. I keep going to schools where there aren't a lot of women. That's true. So how long does it take to get the Master's of Divinity degree. Yeah.
1: So the Master's of Divinity is a three-year program. Okay. Um, so that's what I did.
0: And you Some moved from Nashville to St. Louis, right? Moved
1: to St. Louis from Nashville, yeah. And But I came back here both summers. Okay. So in the three years, there were two summers. That actually was hard. Mm. I would say that seminary was the loneliest time of my life because I had one foot here in Nashville and then one foot in St. Louis. I never really fully embraced community in either place, mm. which I can kind of be you know, a hermit anyway. And seminary takes a lot of time reading and it's, it can be a kind of an isolating experience. But, um, you know, I, would, I, I don't think I, it could have worked a different way for me, but it was definitely hard. I felt like kind of not home ever for three years. And I didn't know I'd come back to Nashville. I mean, I just, I thought, yeah, I really thought when I left that that was, you know, who knew what would be next. I knew I wanted to preach and teach. I thought college ministry would be good. I had no intention or thought that I would be able to come back to Nashville because they had hired somebody at Christ Community to do college ministry. You know, So was your goal to be a pastor? Did you have a goal? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to preach and teach. There was this passage, or there still is actually in the Bible, <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 13, that says, if any man can teach, let him teach. And actually in the Greek, it's the imperative. It's teach. If you can do this, teach. Hmm. So I, that was part of my thing. It's like, yeah, I can play guitar. But if I can teach, I need to do that. Yeah. Um, and so that I felt like I needed to do that, and I didn't know exactly what that would look like. I felt like college students I had done that a lot and seemed to have a good rapport, um, but I wasn't sure that that's what I would do. Um, when I got near the end of seminaries, when I started kind of looking more directly at RUF, and it worked out to come back really to Christ Community as the college pastor, and then. Part of my kind of condition of coming back was that we would start a ministry at Belmont because i didn 't want to, just the students have to come thirty minutes down to the church, but I wanted to be proactive and be up in their world some
0: yeah um yeah so for for those listening that don 't yeah. know uh Christ Community, the church that you were part of is in yeah. Franklin, Tennessee, which yeah. is about half an hour south of Nashville yeah, Belmont right. University is sort of the Berkeley of yeah uh, you know of yeah. Nashville except
1: it 's right. much more uh holistic. Uh, place with, like, right, sane people that major in other things. <laughs> yeah, Berkeley is a completely unbalanced, you know, great, glorious yeah. thing. But it's not like a regular college experience in any sort of way.
0: Yeah. But people come to Belmont to learn to be musicians, songwriters. Yeah, 50% of the students yeah. are
1: music or music business majors. Man, So it still was, you know, a very music-centric place. It still yeah. was a place that fit. As a matter of fact, the first time I ever went to um, Belmont, stepped on campus... Um, we had started this college Sunday school class, and we decided we're going to do contact work. You know, and you know your Young Life background, you know about yeah. contact work. So um, Mark Berry, the guy who they had hired, and and myself, we get out of the car, start to walk uh, over to the cafeteria, and some kid comes up, recognized me from playing with David Mullen, and asked for my autograph. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's like, never happened I feel since. real cool. Yeah. Also, this is yeah. not what I need to be doing Yeah, right Yeah, yeah.
1: You, I feel much more self-conscious now, as you yeah. can imagine, you know, who's the weird old guy, you know? hanging around on the campus. But, I, you know, you change how you do it. Like, when I started out, I was single. You know, I could hang out late night, you know, coffee shop or playing video games or whatever. And then I got married, and then I lived in a place 30 minutes away. And then I had kids, you know. And so every level, you have to keep adjusting. And now, like, two of my former roommates have kids who are freshmen at Belmont. Wow. Yeah, like West King's kids. Yeah. Our, our freshman, his twins, wow, and uh, Bobby Guy, you know Bobby, yeah. So it's just crazy, yeah. You know to see that, and I, you know, you can a lot of people, a lot of pastors will start out as youth pastors and then kind of move up, kind of track with that same group of people, mm-hmm. um, and and I've done this thing where I've kind of just stayed with this group, and then you kind of adjust how you minister to them, yeah. Like from being like a peer, an older brother, you know, now a dad. You know, yeah. I'm really, I'm the same age as their parents.
0: Yeah. You were an older brother for me and yeah. my crew. Yeah, that, right. Yeah, for yeah. sure.
1: Yeah. So I don't do the things the same way. Yeah. You know, because now I've got my own teenagers that I've got to pick up from school and take to sports and whatnot. So less hanging out at night. Yeah. Like I could hang out in, in the evenings with you guys. Yeah. You know, be one of the guys, you know, I can't really do that anymore. That's huh. okay. That actually gives my students the opportunity to minister to one another. Yeah. You know, you become a little more like a coach and less of a player coach.
0: Hmm. So, but you haven't worked at a church in a long time. You work. True. Tell us what Ruf is and what you do. Yeah, do.
1: Ruf is the campus ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. So, in '95, um, when I graduated seminary, I took the job at Christ Community Church as the college pastor, and also was doing Ruf. Then, in 2002, we transferred um, to doing Ruf as a presbytery work. So, there's a group of churches that support that work so i tell people i have to raise all my support but we don't have to go to staff meetings anymore (laughs) and most of the days that's a good you know that's that's fine actually i that, that it was getting harder and harder to be in the nine to five church world where you're supposed to be in the office and also be in the world of the students especially once i had a family yeah you just couldn't balance all those things and so in 2002 when we left the church Um, left staff of the church and then that's when we moved closer up here to Nashville and now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what does your work look like at RUF now? You've been doing the same thing at this point. Yeah, 22
1: years, though, like I say, the first eight years, uh, I was on staff at the church too. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I do more pastoring than most pastors I know because we don't have a lot of, um, program kind of stuff. We have a a large group meeting where I preach, except I preach on Tuesday nights instead of Sunday mornings. Um... Mm -hmm. I do pastoral counseling, one-on-one meetings, probably about 10 to 15, depending on the week at Banga Java, a lot of them. Um, And then we have small groups. I lead some or work with the leaders that lead some. And that's kind of what you do. Large groups, small groups, one-on-ones. That's kind of what every ministry does in some form or fashion. Then probably twice a month, we'll have students over to our house for some kind of, excuse me, special event. Um, Had our Halloween party, you know, the other night. That that does get you know. Now that I'm in my fifties, though, that does get more tiring. Yeah, I can. I feel my age sometimes in those events. You know, ten o'clock. All right, kids, how long are you gonna stay? <laughs> you
0: know, but, you did. You oh, did, well. I saw the photo. You were quite the Martin Luther though. Yes, yeah. yeah, that was my wife's idea. So, <laughs> yep, it's good. So, uh, aside from that, you've also uh, you've started the Indelible Grace yeah. movement. Yeah. Which that's clearly like you started that. Yeah, uh, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so that's the interesting thing, isn't it? So when I left music, I thought I really had left music. Mm-hmm. Um, like I didn't even I, I could play some worship songs, but I you know I, I didn't really do like church music. Um, and You're I remember shredder man.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe. <That's, laughs> I,
1: I you know that, did you that ever own a, a pink guitar? I never had like a Charvel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah, never okay, had. A, okay. No, I did have like a Franken Strat. Um, thing which actually I literally don't know where it is. <laughs> and you know, like you had what you had my lap steel for how long? Like oh, six years. Yeah, a long time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, played it once probably. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, then it just sat a corner. So somebody somewhere has has my uh, my Frankenstein and I don't know where it is. Um, but that's you know, it's like community resource. You know, that's that's <laughs> that's how it is in Nashville. Um, anyway, so I um when I, when I was graduating seminary, I remember interviewing with RUF, and they asked me how I thought my musical background might work itself out in RUF. And I remember my grand vision was maybe when we have our worldview conference, which we did every year back then, maybe I could do a seminar on the arts and why the arts matter. Because they literally didn't have anything on the arts hmm. at this conference on worldview. And um, part of that was because people had different views and they didn't know how to settle it. So we'll just not do it. Yeah, I thought that's crazy. It's like reformed. We understand biblical world life view. All of life matters to God, and the arts certainly matter. Um, so I thought maybe I could be the guy that would do that seminar. I had no idea um, that you know in Double Grace and all that would happen. Though there was even before I went to seminary, I had met Chris Miner because Chris, who's Chris, Chris Miner, wrote so many of our favorite in Grace. You know, retuned hymns. So Psalm 130, O oh, Love That Won't Let Me Go, and George Story Banks, For All the Saints, you know, all these songs. He really wrote most of those in his first year um, as a college student at Vanderbilt. And I met him because I was going to the REF group at Vanderbilt before I went to seminary. So th- that was just starting when I went off to seminary, um, but I didn't necessarily think that I'd be part of that necessarily. Um, So, coming back from seminary now, you know, in 95, coming back to Nashville, um, just the more I would meet with students, the more I would be discouraged because they would have conversations with me about doubts and struggles that they had. Uh, Often they were students who'd grown up in church and were pretty sure that they weren't Christians if they were having doubts and struggles. And as I would kind of dig into that, I would. I just would feel like, man, have you read the Psalms? Because the Psalms seem to speak about these sorts of struggles all the time. And no, they hadn't read the Psalms generally. That isn't where they were getting their sense of what it meant to be a Christian and what it felt like. The more I dug into it, I realized the songs they were singing had way more influence on what they thought it meant to be a Christian than the Bible and the Psalms. And I felt like we need to find some other songs because the songs that they're singing, like, I just want to love you, Jesus, that's all I ever want to do forever and ever. Like those kind of songs were lying to them. And so it was a profoundly alienating experience to be in the midst of a big crowd singing that and not feel that. That's horrible when you feel that and you yeah. feel like you're the only one, right? So we. That's, what, that's really what I was trying to find some better songs to sing that were more honest about struggle. And I found this old hymnal, John Rippon hymnal, and found an Ann Steele text in there, you know, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And I was like, whoa, like, why can't we sing songs like that? Yeah. But the problem was, the hymnals before the Civil War don't have any music in them. So you might remember, like, I sometimes would Xerox off, like, the words, like, let's sing this this week. And you can sing three quarters of the English hymn book with a tune for Come Thou Fount, Amazing Grace, and Rock of Ages.
0: Is that where they were... They were designed that way?
1: Well, yes. Yeah, so the older hymn books, you would have all these hymns and no no music, and then they would be set to about three or four meters. And so you if you knew a tune for a long meter, short meter, you know, common meter, and sevens, that's what Rock of Ages is, then you could sing most all the hymns. And so you would just know your half dozen tunes and sing the whole hymn book. So we would do that at that's first sometimes. Fascinating. Yeah. So sometimes we do that, but after a while you you know, I'd had all these songwriters.
0: Yeah. So sometimes I'd be like,
1: Hey, here's this. We could sing this one to Amazing Grace too, but we sang the last two to Amazing Grace. So maybe somebody could come up with a tune. And um, you know, one of the things in RUF that we love is the idea that you teach and you demonstrate and then the students pick up on that hmm. and take up the baton. So that first in Double Grace record had seventeen songs. We didn't think we'd get to make another one, right? So it's like <laughs> I'm all I'm all on. on Charlie Peacock later was like, Don't ever do that. Like you can't distribute a record with seventeen songs. Like nobody nobody can do anything with that. But that's all right. We just thought we wanted to get some of this music out there. It was maybe our one shot. And um, I wrote ten of those. Yeah. But all the records after that, I wrote like two or three. Yeah. Because other people started doing it. And that was cool. And I, I would also give away hymnals, you know, to you guys, because I knew that even if you wrote a tune to a text that wasn't a great tune, um, which never happened in your case, of course. But you would have to get inside that text. Yeah. And that was gonna be good for you spiritually, hmm. whether it was useful to the church or not. And that's one of the great things about college ministry. You can just kind of experiment like that. Yeah. Like you can't go changing the hymn tunes if you're like at your grandmother's church and you're <laughs> like the worship director, you're gonna get complaints. But with college students, you can kind of yeah do some different things. And I think part of the Berkeley training was just outside the box like there's not rules yeah. like i was trained as a jazz musician you know so you can you
0: can just try this why not yeah and so that's what indelible grace is if yeah you, for those of you listening who,
1: who don't yeah, know that's true cds of old hymns set to new music we've made nine of them now and did the the hymn sing at the Ryman, too, and made even a documentary film. Andy had to miss that. I did. Because he was doing Young Life camp all summer. But oh, we me. missed you. But um, yeah, so it's been cool to see. Had no idea. Like, we put that first record out, and people would buy one, and then the next week they'd buy, like, a dozen. Hmm. And Matthew Smith, even from the beginning, had like he'd be the one to send out the CD orders. And he was a marketing major at Belmont, and he's like, dude, this is like... Not the way things normally work, like people were buying into it at a vision level, like they mm. felt like it was important, what was like it was a a way to still have content but still have modern music and um, yeah, so I, that's actually that sort of got me into hymnity, like studying it for real, very seriously, because I was trying to figure out what was it about this music that was resonating with people, and that You know, the the farther you dig into that, and I'm the five, right, on the Emmy So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I've got to dig into that and figure out why are these hymns working the way they are? And that gets you into what is spirituality, you know, how do people change, you know, what's important to the imagination, how does that, you know, all kinds of things get into that. And now I teach hymnology, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) and I never studied it except on my own. I've bought tons of books. I keep reading more and more about hymns and hymnology, and now I get to teach it, so that's kind of fun.
0: Where do you teach hymnology?
1: At Covenant Seminary, okay, at Belmont, mm-hmm. and um, I just taught it at a Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, too. So it's fun. Yeah, that's kind of become. I feel like you know the indelible grace and hymns have become my life work. That is, I'm going to stay connected to that, mm-hmm. and it, and I can see you know. I think about your podcast and pivot. Like I, st- I think there's still a thread that runs through. Sure. You know, like music. You know, I definitely feel much more comfortable being around music people than being around like normal guys at church. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just don't relate to those dads and those guys, like sports dads <laughs> and sports dads. Yeah, like you know, oh. I just I, I relate to music people in college. Well, you are. A music that's kind of that's kind of yeah. yeah. It's really who I am. And um, and hymnology, you know, kind of t- combines all those things. I mean, really, A Double Grace came out of pastoral ministry, you know, and then trying to find songs that were more honest about suffering, more explicit about the gospel. Then when people resonated with it, I started trying to figure out why. That helped me, I think, be a better pastor. Like, it's not just enough to tell people the truth, they've got to sense it on their heart. It's gotta become beautiful and believable to them. When you did a 20th anniversary, kind of RUF celebration, nobody mentioned any of my sermons. They mentioned (laughs) songs that we sang, Mm. right? When I remember after about the second or third CD, I was writing a little paragraph about what the CD is about. And I'm like, you know, more people are going to read this than will ever hear me preach, Hmm. which is profoundly humbling. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe a little depressing, but it does make you think like, wow, the Lord just keeps doing these surprising things. You know, sometimes the stuff you think is significant isn't, and the stuff you think is not very significant ends up being really significant.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. How old were you when we made that first in Double Grace?
1: So, so we made it in 2000. It came out in 2000. We made it in 99. Mm-hmm. I was born in 64. So it's at 34. Yeah. Your life's work. Yeah. And I've been doing it for a while now. Yeah. Oh. And I still enjoy it. Yeah. Which is amazing. Because I've kind of been the guy who I usually do something to satisfy myself, or I... I Pursue something until I can satisfy myself that I could do this if I really pursued it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm ready to
1: move on. So it's kind of a meta ADD, ADD, I guess. Yeah. You know? Like, I just don't stay at one thing for very long. But I've stayed at this for a long time. Yeah. Because I think it picks up all these different pieces. And it's always something new. Yeah. You know? And even when we make a record, it's all, I always try to involve a younger student. Yeah. Different ones. You know? And every one of them is kind of fresh that way. Like Jürgen. Yeah. You know, and the first, like he had all kinds of great ideas, Yeah, you know, and then, you know, it kind of goes on and on and on. And you guys have been involved and, you know, Cason, remember, he was the guy who would just hang out in the control room till the project was almost done. And he'd be like, hey, I've got this idea,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> so this is a spiritual
1: gift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about this? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's just been so cool. You know, people ask me at the Ryman show, like what I was feeling. I was just feeling like a proud dad. Because mm. I was like, yes, of course. Like, I mean, I think like Will and Ian told me that was their first time to play the Ryman. Mm. You know, and these guys, Ian Fitchick, Will Sales, like these guys are amazing. Musicians. Yeah, played with
0: everybody. Yeah, yeah, and
1: they've played the Ryman many times now since. Yeah. But I was like, that's so cool. Like, they should get to play here, and if I can do something that enables them to be able to do that, like,
0: that's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, you're with people right before they start their careers, mm. and I know a lot of them are. Probably questioning things. I know I was when I was yeah. at that age. Yeah. And, we're yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm curious what kind of – what questions you hear or what are this, what's the struggle with calling for people who are just starting yeah, a career? I find I regularly have this conversation explicitly with
1: students and their parents when they're visiting hmm. the college. And I usually will hear the parents ask something about, will the, my, my student be able to get a job? if they major in this, especially like music business. Yeah. No. And I, yeah, that's what I tell them. I say, <laughs> no, but that's not the way to think about college anymore. I mean, the average person changes careers, what, five times? in lives? Maybe eight, yeah. So the idea that college gets you your first job and then you just work at that career and build up a pension, like that's not the world we live in. It hasn't been for a long time. So I'm a big fan of liberal arts education teaching you how to think, giving you a kind of um, invitation to be part of the world community and to the ideas that shape the things that matter, like develop your gifts, try different things. I, I think all that, don't think of, of college just as like a tech school to get a job. Um, that, those are the kind of things like trying, and, it, and it's trying to get people to move towards thinking about calling and vocation and not such a narrow focus on Mm-hmm. How do I get a job from yeah. this? What it I mean do, what does calling mean to you when you when you talk to these folks? Yeah. I mean, you know, the guy you should really ask that question to is Steve Garber cuz he's <laughs> the the Mac Daddy, right? His book Visions of Vocation is profound and um, he'll talk about basically like where the needs of the world and your gifts intersect. That's the place of calling. Whether you get to do that vocationally or not, that's a second question. Um, like, I do think what's interesting, you know, we t- in the reform tradition, we talk about biblical world and life view and how, you know, the sacred secular distinction is not biblical or helpful. The idea that some people are serving God in spiritual vocations and other people are just doing secular work, like I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. But one of the things that that has then led to is people feeling like, well, I can do anything. And then it's hard to figure out what do you do, right? Yeah. And particularly, like there are certain needs in the world that you may not like. Like, here's what I'm getting at: some people I think think of calling as the way that they'll be fully satisfied, fully realized. Hmm. Um, particularly if they don't think about kind of how this is not home, right? You still gotta understand that this is not this is not home, even as you're thinking about what you're good at and what how you're gifted. Um, because otherwise you're, you're looking at your vocation, your calling as a way to be satisfied, but somebody's called to pick up the trash, you know? And would you say they're necessarily gifted at it? You know, there's God's providence, there's needs, you know, even having to, you know, feed your family. I mean, all those kind of things, I think, go into vocation. Yeah. Calling is probably deeper underlying that. And there are times when you can't fully function in your calling, right? There's that hymn that I love, Jesus I my cross have taken, where it talks this line, some uh, joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. And I don't think we think enough about bearing things as being the place where we find joy in a station where we're not doing what we want to do. Hmm. I, I, think that, I don't think an American in the 21st century would have written that hymn, I'm sure of it, because we just think about what do I need to do, and I want to do good things, big things for God, and He may have you in a season where you bear things, and you may not know what influence that could have or impact, mm. may not have any impact that you can see, um, but it still may be, you know, what you're called to be about. So I don't know. I feel like that's a little garbled. But uh, but I do want people to think not just in terms of vocation as the way that they can be fully satisfied, but thinking of it as the way you love your neighbor. Hmm. And loving other people isn't always enjoyable. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it depends involves, on the, yeah, you know, burden-bearing and sacrifice. Sometimes it's really hard. So I think we not need all to think about yeah, you know, are,
0: are obviously lovable.
1: Yeah, right. Including us. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, you know, Dan Allender said one time, you know, the best way to learn about God's love is to actually try to love somebody and realize how bad you are at it. <laughs> you know, um, there is something to trying to live the Christian life and, um, failing at it that actually takes you deeper into what the gospel is all about. Um, so I think sometimes you know, kid, our kids, you know, we we they try things and then we steer them away from things they're bad at. I think one of the great tragedies is most college students have already decided what they're good at, what they're not good at. Mm. Like kids by middle school, high school have decided whether they're into sports or not. And I'm like, man, like if you're just too young to not keep trying things. Yeah, you know, you're like 13, 14, trying to take like you know, personality tests and you haven't done anything
0: or you're trying to take <laughs> gift tests,
1: you know, and you, you don't know if you're gifted at teaching. I yeah. would not have known I was gifted at teaching until my senior year in college and really after that. So, you know, if I think I'm going to have that figured out before I've even had much life experience, that's, that's not such a good plan. And I think so many people's life experience is about success, which means staying at the things you're good at and eliminating the things you're bad at. You know, I don't know if that's such a good way to figure out who God's made you to be. You know,
0: if you don't ever get hit up against your limits, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Man, that that's so rich. So I imagine you see students sort of start off on careers that you can see probably because you know them and you've, you've got some wisdom that mm-hmm. they don't have. And you can say, this is not probably the thing for them. Hmm. Do you Do you see that happen? Do you? I don't know. I mean,
1: what I'll tell you is most of my students that did music business have went back and done like a six-month coding program, and they're all (laughs) doing that. (laughs) You know, that's what I see a lot of. Yeah, Um, yeah. No, I do see people do different things, but um, I feel like in some ways, like, I want to help people know what they should do for a living, but I feel pretty unqualified at doing that. Um, like even like if I have a great student, I don't even know who to talk to to help them find a job because I don't know any people that hire people. I just know <laughs> students and people that need jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I know entrepreneurs who are like doing their own thing because yeah. that's kind of the world I live in. Yeah. So I usually encourage them to use the vocational counseling that they have at school because yeah, there are people yeah. whose focus and expertise is mm-hmm. on that. I do know that we tend to think sometimes too narrowly about like, okay, I can do this. These are my gifts, so I should do this. And people that are gifted with vocational counseling can help you see, well, those gifts could be used in all these other areas that you would never have thought yeah. about. Um, like I had a friend of mine, he was um, doing RUF and had some some big like CEO kind of people um, on it, it kind of in his life as he was thinking about transitioning. And, and one of them said, you know, you've been raising... You know, $150,000 a year for like 15, 20 years, kind of on your own by talking to donors. Like, I would love to have somebody with that kind of experience working for me. Hmm. You know, and he never would have thought, like, how does a, what does a pastor do next? Yeah. You know, but no, you've actually been doing this or you've actually been helping people in transition times in their life. So you could do this or that. So I find I don't know a lot about that kind of stuff. I tend to not see the, the big picture when it comes to those things. Yeah. So I try and help people how I can and then connect them to people that maybe
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. can.
1: But I do, there are times, I, you know, I, I don't know. So I mean, certainly I mean, with music, I yeah. can be like, oh, I just don't know if this is well, what they, you should do I- as a vocation, but then you're not sure. like <laughs> Because sometimes, honestly, even when I was in college, like I was in college with this girl who ended up like getting a Grammy for like self-producing her record. It was like the first female to get a Grammy for producing her own record. Like record of the year, right? Mm-hmm. And she was this girl that just sat in the back of class. You know, I, I knew people that like excelled at music school and were in all the showcases. Those aren't the people that made it. Yeah. You know, it was the people that was like the weird kids in their room working on their music that nobody understood. Like, <laughs> so I don't even feel like I have a good sense of, people's talent and who's gonna, you know, make it. And I think so much of that has to do with God kind of putting people into situations anyway. Yeah,
0: That's, and, under, yeah, I wondered. I, and, I, well,
1: I, think about you. Well, I wrote I mean, that you question can, down you, and I, I was like, yeah, I don't know if there's a name there. Yeah. yeah, but, oh, I mean, dude, you I came, to, you came to years. college. <laughs> you came to, yeah, but you came to college, like, ahead of the game. As far as the music business, I mean, you already had a publishing deal, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Even when you got there, yeah. Um, I didn't play know what guitar. It meant. You can sing. Yeah. I know. But looking back on it, you'd be like, okay, you were way ahead of the game compared to most college students at Belmont, right? Sure. And you've had some success, but it's not like it's just been the gravy train, you <laughs> know. <laughs> and things have been, you know, very watered yeah. down gravy. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah very watery gravy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you know. I, I tell people the best thing to do is just be a jack-of-all-trades. Like, develop your gifts. You can just never know, you know, how they might be used. And then, you know, honestly, it's beyond just getting a job, like, try to f- find a place, you know. I think even, like, you see needs in terms of your giftedness. Yeah. This is something I heard Tim Keller say once. Um, he, he talked about how when he started at a new church, I think this was before Redeemer, so it was Virginia, um, he had somebody come to him and be like, hey, you know that that trailer park over there? We really should like reach out to those people. He was like, okay, like that's the thing this church really needs to do. And then somebody else was like, you know, we really need to get more organized. You know, like we've got all this, you know, all these people, but we just, we could really get organized. And then somebody else get like in the same week, he had like three different people with three completely different things that needed to be the church's focus. And what he realized is like each of those people had gifts that enabled them to see areas of need. And what he needed to do was basically deputize those people and say, that's great. Help us do that. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening all the time is people that are gifted in certain things end up looking for a church or a situation that already does what they're good at Hmm. because then they feel like it's, it's good. It's doing the thing that matters. But they probably don't need you. As much as that church over there that you're kind of looking down your nose at because they're not doing the thing. Now, not all leadership will enable, sure. you know, or allow you to come in and, and use your gifts. Um, that's one of the cool things about college ministry is we need everybody, and everybody can just try things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, you know, I, I can't, I can't wait until somebody's been trained for three or four years to lead a small group. Because yeah. I have 25% of my people leaving every year. 25% yeah. of my leaders. Right. You have to just turn people loose um, without them being experts. And you know, it's amazing how God works through that, Hmm. amazing. There's a great book called uh, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, by a guy named Roland Allen. And he was a missionary um, who looked at kind of India and some of the places where the Anglican, the Church of England had done missions. He was like, you know, Paul would basically go into a place, go to the big city, be there for a few months, train people and then leave. And why is it after a hundred years, like we still have like white people running things. (laughs) And that was a profound book for us to read in seminary. Uh, Several of us that did RUF because we're like, yeah, like we can't, um, we can't, we don't get to hire staff, you know, we just have some interns maybe, but if we get interns, we didn't even get to pick the interns. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. And RUF, this is an amazing thing. Um, Like, if you want to be an RUF intern, you go to your campus minister and go through this application process and you get screened, and interviewed, and all that. But then RUF Central Office places you somewhere. And they place you at a new campus so that you can see that maybe the difference between the gospel and the personality of your previous campus minister. Because it looks different in different places. And it's really helpful if you're going to be equipped for ministry to realize that not everything needs to look like the way Kevin Twitt would do it at Belmont. Yeah. Right. A lot of what Belmont looks like has to do with half the students are music or music business majors, and you know, and I am who I am, and my personality and my you know Enneagram and all that stuff plays into it. So then I get an intern that I've never interviewed, that I've never met, and then you have to work with them.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: so different than almost every other job. Yeah. Right. Most people like you interview and you try and find the person that's the perfect fit. There's actually something really beautiful about getting someone who may not be a great fit yeah. and helping them find a place in ministry. It actually is what the church should be more like. I, it always frustrates me how churches kind of feel like they have a need and then they go out on the open market and look for the best person to fill the need. And instead of saying, maybe the people God has brought to us should guide us into what things we should be doing. Like we have these people with these gifts. Maybe we should do this hmm. instead of we need to do that. Let's go find somebody. I'm not against, you know, pastoral search committees and all that stuff. But it is I have learned something really fascinating about having to work with people that may not have been the people I would have hired. Now, sometimes it's, it's hard, you know, sure. and sometimes it doesn't even work. But it's worth trying and, and realizing that people can have a ministry that may be very different than what you would expect. Hmm. I mean, I imagine that applies to, yeah, all sorts of... Yeah. All sorts I had one of my students, for instance, he, he found his real call to ministry by working in an old folks' home in the mm-hmm. summers. Like that's not, there's not very many people that feel like they want to go to seminary because they, they just feel like these old people in a nursing home don't have anybody to minister the gospel to them. And he would just get weepy even talking about it. Mm. You know, I, I do think there's something that sheep without a shepherd feeling like that mm-hmm. a lot of like if you feel that you should explore that. Yeah there's something there. There's something there. And um so then he ends up going to be an RUF intern and I get a call from the campus minister where he went saying, I don't know what's up with this guy because I told him to meet me at the gym to play basketball, pick up basketball with some students, and he didn't show up. And so I, I was like, well that's probably not what he's probably called to do. Maybe you should um you know, try to understand who he is. Like that may be what you would do, but honestly, you should let him start a D and D group <laughs> at your campus. <laughs> you know, because he's not going to go meet students playing pickup basketball, but you're not going to meet the kids that would come to his D and D group. Yeah, and I think that's that's hard for us, but um, but I think that it's great if God can open our eyes to see that there's so like on a college campus, there's so many different groups of people. Like yeah. when I was in Young Life in the eighties, it was like you know, get the cheerleader and the, you know, football captain and the rest of the kids will follow. Mm-hmm. And high school hadn't been like that in a long, long time. Yeah. It's all stratified. It's all niche. If you get the cheerleaders and the football players, you won't get. You won't get <laughs> the nerds. You know, the rest yeah. of the school. Yeah. So I, I think that we need to look and, and value everybody. And that's one of the things, like, I you know, I don't think anybody thought that I would do ministry when I was in high school. Hmm. Like, it, they definitely didn't. Um, the my My... You know, leaders that were in my life wouldn't have done that at all. Hmm. But God keeps pulling me into that. So it's, I think that's helped me to be like, well, I'm just not sure. I, I, I don't ever want to jump to conclusions.
0: Yeah. man. Uh, when you were just a minute ago, when you were talking about getting those uh, interns placed, who yeah. might not be the right fit. Yeah. That, that reminded me of something that, I mean, there's a corollary there, I think, to marriage, too. Mm. And the Yeah. And I don't remember who I've heard say this. It's always accredited to some old random old guy. Uh-huh, the church. Uh-huh. But, you know, I've been married to five different men my whole oh, life yeah. and they've all had the same name. You know? yeah. but the, the, yeah. Sort of you you marry even even the people you do choose yes. having your life will change oh, yeah. and you will change. Yeah, yeah. And what you need from this person now yeah. versus what you need yeah. from them 10, yeah. 20 that, years. Th-
1: yes. Tim Keller's version of that is, you know, you never marry the right person. Because huh. if you do, they will be a different person in five years. Yeah. I had, you know, I'll, I'll keep the names, you know, private, but I had a student the night before his wedding whose parents had been divorced. His dad asked him, are you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sure she's the one? And he's like, Kevin, what do I do with that? I say, like, dude, your dad has no idea why he got divorced because hmm. he thinks it was about the choice he made. And I understand in a consumer... Culture, like all the weight, is on making the right choice. But that's not—I'm sure that's not what happened in his story. Hmm. And how can you be absolutely—you'll be sure after you put the ring on tomorrow. Yeah, you know. Then we but who knows? But you have to believe, and this is what I—I would say, even for me, because I was like, how can I unite myself to somebody that I know I'm going to sin against and disappoint? Like, if I don't believe that God works all things for the good, even my sin against my wife. It works it for her good because he's bigger than even my sin, then I have no business being in a relationship with anybody. You know. Mm. So I think that's, yeah. That, that And actually, you get back to calling, it all comes around. Mike Smith, who did our premarital counseling, that was his first question. And maybe the first question I asked you guys was, why do you feel called to marry Wendy? Because he said, most people look at you know have got this list of like 10 things and i've never mm-hmm. seen anybody who had more than 7 and she's got 8 <laughs> so i better i better you know close this deal like that's such the wrong way to think about it mm-hmm. but there again there was a sense of wendy would say you know the lord kind of opened her heart to me and when she wasn't wanting that to happen and we felt like a responsibility to kind of keep following through on that mm. that's sometimes what it feels like isn't it like as you're seeking out vocation and calling it just feels like your eyes get opened And you're getting pulled into something and you have a sense of woe is me if I don't kind of keep stepping into this.
0: Mm -hmm. And this may not be the thing I think I want. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I wanted this. Oh, man. yeah.
1: I very distinctly remember thinking about asking Wendy out and thinking, what if she says yes? What if she says no? Those are both really frightening (laughs) prospects. (laughs) So much so that I don't know even what I want because both of them are going to draw me into something that I don't want. (laughs) Pain, vulnerability, all kinds of stuff that, I'm not really excited about, Hmm. but God, I think helped me to say, you know, or to to believe that He was big enough for what if, you know. I'm not saying I have that every day, but I think that's that would be a good thing for us to try to remember every day that God's big enough for what if. Hmm.
0: That's awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you for your time. Yeah, that seems like a good place to close. Yeah, yep, wonderful. Thank you. I love it.
1: Keep up the good work.
0: Oh, I love that man. That was so fun. Kevin, thank you. Um, hey, I want to let you guys know something. You, you heard Kevin talk about his love of teaching about hymns, and he is really so crazy smart about this stuff. And it's so fun to hear just the history of hymns and the way that that has shaped our culture and the church. Uh, it's really fascinating. And, and so Kevin we'll actually be teaching a Covenant Theological Seminary seminar on the history of hymns, uh, hymnody, here in Nashville, January 5th and 6th. And that is not a closed thing. It is um, mostly for seminary students. But if you're interested in that and you want to come to Nashville because Nashville is awesome and you want to get some hot chicken, you you guys should come. Uh, If you're going to be around, I think you'd really love it. They're actually doing... Uh, a special deal for listeners of this podcast. So uh, you can get a ticket for that, which is, I think, 30 bucks. You can get it for 15. Uh, if you go to historyofhymnody2018.eventbrite.com and use the code THEPIVOT, one word. I know that's kind of long. I'll tweet that out too. So uh, They're also doing a, a hymn sing on Saturday night at the Art House. Um, they're doing a, a live stream of hymns being sung, and I think Sandra McCracken's going to be there, and I'm not sure exactly who else is going to be there, but a lot of the Indelible Grace folks. I I would be there, but I have to be at a Young Life thing that night. I'm so excited to be there, but bummed to miss uh, this event. But you'll be able to follow the live stream if you're interested in that, and uh, I will tweet that out as well. I'm sure you can follow uh, Kevin J. Twit on Twitter, Instagram, and and he'll send you those as well. Also, for more about Indelible Grace music, you can go to igracemusic.com. They've got chord sheets and stories behind hymns and a way to hear all the different music. So be sure and check that out. also have some exciting news if you're interested in my music uh, about a new record and a house show tour. And that stuff will be coming out um, 1st of January. So stay tuned for that. As always, you can find more about this podcast at everybodypivots.com. Say hey. Uh, ratings on iTunes are super helpful, and we've got a Patreon page as well if you want to get involved there. We'd really appreciate that. That's it for us today. Just what a treat to get to spend that time with my buddy Kevin, and I'm glad you got to hear that. And I'm excited, so excited for next week's interview. We're going to start the new year off with what was my favorite conversation I had last year, I think, at least on the podcast. Stay tuned for that one. But for now, enjoy your Christmas break. Play some card games. Have some fun. Eat some good food. And uh, go do something awesome.